0: Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons.
1: And this is Shelley Nelson.
0: Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting a true industry trailblazer. Tony Newcomb. Tony is currently the Chief Technology Officer at Active Campaign, a leading company that specializes in intelligence-driven sales and marketing automation for small businesses, empowering them to connect and engage with their customers like never before. As CTO, Tony spearheads software engineering, product development, team leadership, and cloud computing initiatives. He joined the company back in 2018 and his remarkable vision and expertise has been pivotal in driving its meteoric growth. From humble beginnings with 50,000 customers and 275 employees, Tony played a key role in propelling active campaign to unprecedented heights with over 100,000 customers and a workforce of over 575 across four global offices by 2021. Tony's journey in the tech industry has been marked by a series of remarkable achievements and contributions to some of the biggest names in the field. Prior to joining Active Campaign, Tony held a crucial role as Senior Vice President of Engineering at Salesforce, where he led engineering teams for over four years. During his tenure at Salesforce, he played a pivotal role in driving innovation and shaping the company's technological landscape. Before his time at Salesforce, Tony made a significant impact at Exact Target, where he dedicated nearly five years to scaling their global platforms. His expertise and efforts were instrumental in enhancing the platform's capabilities, ensuring its efficiency and reliability for businesses worldwide. Tony's remarkable achievements in the industry have not gone unnoticed, as evidenced by his well-deserved recognition. In 2021, he was honored with the prestigious CTO of the Year Award by IBG News, a testament to his exceptional leadership. Get ready to be inspired as Tony shares his valuable insights and experiences on innovation in the digital enterprise landscape. Please join us in welcoming Tony Newcomb to our podcast.
1: Welcome to the show, Tony.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today.
1: If you don't mind, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your role at Active Campaign?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My title is the Chief Technology Officer here at Active Campaign. And that really means I do whatever is necessary to help continue to move the business forward. And so leading engineering teams, both from platform reliability, but then also product development. I've, until very recently, also led our product team. Our founder, Jason, is now taking on the product role, working as my partner there. So very exciting to see that transition. I've led other functions like compliance. I lead security. I'm operating as our chief information officer as well. So I lead all the corporate IT functions. So really, anything technology,
0: I've broadly... Have responsibility for an Active Campaign. Awesome, awesome. I know I covered a bit about your background, but I, I we talked a little bit about your story previously. So, do you mind sharing a little bit more about the details of some of the more interesting things that have led you to this role and to all this success?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I think my journey is more about failure than success in in many ways. So, awesome. Yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's why we're here. <laughs> that's why we're here.
2: That's right. I I went to Purdue University, you know, back in the 90s. Late I thought 90s. you said you were starting with failure. I did. I did. Purdue's awesome. Well, I flunked out. So they, oh, they well, there we go. me go. take a semester off. And, you know, it was really during that time, I think, that I learned that the margin between success and failure is very small. Mm. And even the the idea that somehow you go to college and all these great things happen, kind of at that moment in my life just seemed like BS. And so I started working at a gas station and I just had a very lucky kind of run there, became a manager and just met some amazing humans that really didn't see their world scope growing beyond, frankly, working in a gas station. And it opened my eyes up because they were perfectly capable of doing everything that everyone I was working with at Purdue was capable of doing. And so to me, it just helped me appreciate I really better not squander my opportunity to go to college and the fact that I had a good foundation to believe there was something bigger in life that I could go and achieve. And so I did get back into school eventually and I did graduate and I did very well on the back half of my career there, but it was not an easy ride. I had a really difficult time getting back into the computer technology program. They didn't want me. It was kind of a one and done deal. You flunked out, you were done and ended up kind of talking to hundreds of people, it seemed like, and a professor pulled me aside on the last day of that first semester back and said, Tony, if you're really serious, you need to go to Purdue Statewide Technology. There's a loophole. Get your associate's degree there. They have to let you in to get your bachelor's degree on campus. said, you might not like the journey because it's going to add time to your tenure in college, but you can do this. And so that's what I ended up doing. And yes, it added like a couple of semesters to my overall time because I needed like two classes, but they offered one in the fall and one in the spring. So I was there for a full year to effectively get two course credits to get an associate's degree to take advantage of this opportunity. But it worked out really well for me. From there, I got my first job out of college as a consultant. I really thought that software consulting was going to be the thing for me. You know, the idea that you always get to work on new problems. You weren't going to get stuck in some corporate like basement. You were going to go and be a change agent. And I ended up doing that for nine years. Loved it. Had a great career there. I was very fortunate to work with people like Bill McCauley and Steve McNear and just some really big titans in that industry here in Indiana. And at some point decided I really I'm kind of tired of leading all of what I was doing at that company and really becoming a motor vehicle expert. I felt like I was getting pigeonholed into a domain. I thought maybe I should try something else. And I talked to my dad about it. And I had this opportunity to be a software engineer again. And all the advice that everyone I talked to was like, hey, Tony, don't do that. Like you report to the CEO, you're you know, a director, you're the program manager for the motor vehicle practice there. You have a lot of scope and a lot of responsibility. And it sounds like you're going to take a big pay cut. And it was true. I was taking a big pay cut. I had no reports. I was going back to my roots of software engineering, knowing full well, I may never get back into leadership again. I may, maybe it's stuck in the IC track. Maybe people wouldn't see my potential. So I was okay with that trade-off. I did have to talk to my family about just tempering our lifestyle expectations because it did set us back a bit from just income coming in the door. But it worked out. It worked out just fine. And I had a very successful career at exact target and moving on into Salesforce as well.
0: So when you made that decision, it sounded like you had a family at the time.
2: I was married. We had young children. So I have a stepson. So he was always ahead of me kind of in life planning. So when I got married, my wife had a a child already. And then we had two of our other three kids already were in the family at that time. So growing family, young kids, Probably I don't know I don't remember how old they were but they would have been like three or four years old somewhere in that range and yeah it was a risk and then we had our last child very shortly after I joined Exact Target so it was just kind of a fun journey there
0: I guess what I'm trying to drive at is that's not an easy decision right talking no. about going home and saying hey uh, I believe in this I think this is the right thing everybody tell me it's not and I'm going to take less money. I <laughs> mean, <That's, Yeah. laughs> I can't imagine that conversation being be like, okay, pass the rolls,
2: you know? Yeah, honestly, from my experience, no one in my family cares what I do for a living or they're more curious now, but they've generally not really been too concerned about what I do or if I have to travel or any of that has never been a problem. But when I said I was impacting the family finances, we would need to temper back like, hey, we're going to not have a vacation. Like there's going to be some, some of these things we thought we were going to do. Our budget's just not going to be there for that impacts everyone more broadly. I think that's pretty common. Your parents are this like, yes, they're there. They provide for you. But you as your kids, you kind of live your own life and do your own thing. And I think that when it impacts what we could do socially, that became more of a, an issue for us. That said, one of the commitments that I did end up making along the way was that we were going to take family vacations, which was not something we did when I was in consulting. I just always felt this tremendous pressure to help sell a deal. I remember we went to Gatlinburg for the first time and I spent half that time working on this tiny, I mean, it was like a four-week contract that we were negotiating with one of our customers. And I spent most of my time in the cabin negotiating, trying to get this four-week deal across the goal line. And, you know, it just wasn't a good lifestyle for me at, at that time. So I think moving back into software engineer role to me was my path to be more available to my family. So it made a lot of sense to me. Oh, it's awesome.
0: One of the things that we talked about before, use this concept of balance versus integration. And one of those concepts is betting on yourself. And that's the pattern that comes very clear in hearing your story and what we see professionally and what you've done post-journey that you just shared. Could you explain that concept to our listeners that balance versus integration? Yeah, I think... To me,
2: at least, and I know there's been others that have written about this, I think expressed things similarly. But what resonates with me is the idea of balance always felt off because then it always feels like you're trading things off, where it's like, well, you know, I need to balance both my investment areas. And it is true, like we all have social banks, if you will, where I need to deposit in our relationship for you to withdraw for me and vice versa. And so we should all be giving and trying to refill that bank of relationship with people. And that's whether they're in your work life or they're in your your home life. But for me, I'm just me. Like, I can't turn off work. It's something that's always on my mind. There are times when I will be mumbling to myself as an example. And my wife's like, you're working on something right now. You need to go outside. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know, it's it's cool. But like, they appreciate that about me. That's just who I am. And to me, it's more integrated. So I've never really felt like I am trying to say well I'm not going to be working right now I'm I'm going to put that in compartmentalize it I'm just not that good at compartmentalization I guess I can't do that and say well I'm going to push this to the side to me it's all about integrating your life and so doing things where I I do have a commitment where we are going to have now covid kind of messed this up but we're going to mm-hmm. have you know family vacations we're going to make time for that I'm going to make it a priority to go out to dinner with my wife periodically and and to go out with friends and we are going to see concerts. I don't really like concerts, but I enjoy spending the time with my wife and our (laughs) friends. So we're going to do that. And to me, it's all just making it all work together. I still will sometimes come home after the concert and read a proposal or inspect code or take a look at, you know, how's the system performing or follow up on a retro. So I, I don't, see that as a problem. I've never really seen that as an issue. I think that I've probably suffer from imposter syndrome as many of us do, where I always feel like the next person in line is right there ready to take my seat. And so I, I'm very happy to do the work that I think is necessary to ensure that doesn't happen. And I think that that's why I've been able to kind of have long tenured careers in the in the various roles that I've held. I'm now going on my sixth year here at Active Campaign in a very senior role where the margin for there is no tolerance for not achieving. And so there, you know, there's been times where we've had to work as a leadership team till three or four in the morning and I'm going to do that. And I, I don't see that as a problem. I just see that as this is just what it takes to be where we're at. It's just kind of what is necessary to do it. And it feels very natural to me. I don't feel like my life is in somehow in conflict because i have heavy workload and i have demands as a father as well
0: the concept that you brought up around imposter syndrome show you how many times is the guest here brought up imposter syndrome
1: 80% of the time
0: totally and i think it's inherent to agents of change people who are trying to do things they're pushing fast they're moving fast and inevitably there's something that undermines their confidence They have a setback. And I have a great friend, Dan Sullivan, who talks about the gap in the game. We focus too much on the gap of what we haven't accomplished. That's when the imposter syndrome takes over. But if you look back and you say, oh, my goodness, look at all I've done over the last six, nine, 12 months, you suddenly you get back on track. So everybody gets imposter syndrome. The key is just like a good defensive back. What's your recovery time, right? The wide receiver is going to lose you. Right. Yeah, and so your recovery time is really what you're graded on.
2: When I'm experiencing it, the best advice I had from this—this is—I'll credit my dad. He was an executive as well, and I was just very fortunate to have him as a mentor. I still have him as a mentor. But when I was younger, he he would always tell me, "Tony, you know, I'd say, well, this can't be done, right? Like I'm struggling with something, whether it was schoolwork or whatever. I said, this can't be done, and he'd say, well, do you mean it can't be done, or do you mean you're not quite sure how to do it?" and those are very distinctly different concepts. And he said, I actually think anything can be done. It's just a matter of whether or not you can currently see the path to do it. And he said, in those moments, think of somebody who you believe could do the job. So like you might be sitting there saying, well, I can't do this, but I'm sure so-and-so would be able to do this. If only they were here, then ask yourself, well, what would they do if they were here? And then go try it. Right, so a definitive bias to action, I think, is necessary to just go try something. Like you always hear about, like the cliches of, well, half of success is trying, and and you know you just get stuck in analysis paralysis. In a lot of ways, it's true because you'll make that attempt, and all of a sudden, you'll learn something or learn why that's maybe not the right way to go. The other thing that I've done many times, and probably some of the folks listening will recognize this, I will call people that I think would maybe know the answer. And I will just say, Hey, sorry to bother you. And this is where I've invested time in them. So they pick up the phone. I don't just use them to get answers. I I invest time as just humans to be there for them too. And I'll just ask them straight up, what would you do in a situation like this? And I won't share like necessarily details of what I'm dealing with, but Mm -hmm. enough to give them context to help me form my plan. And I think that Well, call that a mentor, whatever you want to call it. I don't really go around saying, Hey, will you mentor me? I've had, I find that to be an awkward exchange, but I think that just the circle you keep should be filled with folks that you want to invest time with them. And then in turn, know that they'll be there for you as well. I think that's really important.
1: That's awesome. I think you covered my earlier question, Tony, I was going to ask, you know, it seems inherent in your DNA, just your work ethic and your constant strive to win. So I was going to ask if you had any great mentors in your life or people that you aspire to be like, and it sounds like your dad is that person. So that is incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that is a fair assessment. I think the the drive to win, I think probably I I've, formed I've that playing sports, playing football at Carmel High School, go Greyhounds, but... <laughs> back in high school and and the reason was we didn't win every game we played but we certainly didn't lose the games we didn't win you know we would always walk away with a lesson and ask ourselves "Well, what went wrong what can we take away from this what could we have done differently to have a better outcome and i think that that just kind of relentless pursuit of no we can achieve better than what we just did this performance does not mean we are losers it just means we Happen to lose today. And I think that you've got to find that resilience somewhere. And so for me, I think sports does a great job of building resilience. You know, I, I, my body breaks down over the years. I I don't play sports anymore, but those fundamental, I think just lessons that you learn, especially in a competitive school really make a big difference. I think.
1: I'm going to make some assumptions here that you probably share all your failures with your team. So you've probably built that trust and allowed them to fail fast and they feel that it's okay if they make a mistake.
2: I think so. I mean, we certainly don't punish folks for making a mistake. I think that it's easier for me to convey that with the folks I work directly with. i found as you're a senior leader, it gets really hard because, you know, you just don't have the, the trust on across 300, 500 people. You don't get that ability to invest as much time with each other to have that foundation. And so I try my best to You know, when we were in the office more frequently to spend time with folks, because I think those are real relationships you're building and not spend time with them, like solving a problem or like expecting their work, but just talking with them so that then when there is something that I'm curious about or that they're struggling with, I can pick up the phone and they know that I'm really showing up to offer advice or offer support and not show up to hold them accountable, which is, you know, when you're a senior leader, I think people always just assume... You're the boss. And so there's some kind of a problem like when you're when you're showing up and and things need filtered before you you hear it and that sort of thing. But I think you've really got to work hard to invest in those relationships with your team so that they will open up to you and that they will feel comfortable sharing. And and over time, for me at least, I see more and more and more people willing to open up and share their thoughts or reaching out to me and saying, Hey, I just want to make you aware of this. Like I appreciate that so much because there's a finite amount of time in a day, if there's a fire somewhere in the organization, I will miss it if I don't have folks that are willing to raise their hand and say, Hey, I know something doesn't seem right. I need help. And I generally try to open my questions up either with, in a one-on-ones with how is it going? What's on your mind? And then kind of my favorite question to ask is what can I do to support you? And I think that a lot of times leaders are not, I think, offering that support and, and really should.
1: Well, I'm so curious. I think you nailed it because employee net promoter scores, they say that the two questions that move the dial the biggest are, does your manager care about you personally? And the other one is, has your manager thanked you in the last seven days? So those are usually the two questions, again, that'll move the needle on those scores. And so it sounds like your approach is exactly that. So I think we can all learn a lot from your leadership style.
2: Yeah, it's cool to me to see the number of folks that I've worked with across multiple companies You know that were willing to work with me again. In some cases, I'll work on their teams. In other cases, they'll work on my team. I always think that's a, a true testament of just doing good things together. I also think that that question that you ask, that's a tough one because when you're a senior executive, you're not your team's manager. In a lot of cases, like you know, your frontline, the engineers that are out there engineering every day, only one of those folks reports to me, right? And oh. so everyone else has somebody else who's their manager. And so then it's really how do you build those skills into your managers so that they know that look like, yes, you're accountable to these outcomes and it's stressful. And I'm aware of that. Like it is not always an easy ride to be in hyper growth. SAS, it's a competitive industry. We have to pivot hard. We have to change things quickly. There's a lot of turmoil that that creates. And yet, we can survive and thrive through that, but it does take effort and it does take very conscious effort on how do we treat each other as people. And I think that's something that is always kind of top of mind for me as we're looking to fill the team. It's very important as you're scaling out that everyone that you bring into your leadership team to support you through that is on the same page and trying to operate the same way.
0: Is there something that you've found to be successful to encourage? I mean, we all know uh, promoting people with a technical background that generally underinvested in the leadership or management skills, and then moving to that more advanced servant leadership mentality of appreciation. Is there something that you've done that you think has been really impactful? You know, I think that's a good question.
2: I don't think there's like any one thing, everyone's a little different, and every circumstance is a little different. I think that. I've certainly allowed folks to enter leadership and then pull back out of leadership and go back into an IC path if they so choose. So I think that's important because you can often lose your best talent by promoting them into an EM role or a manager role. And then they don't really like the manager stuff and they, they have to maybe deal with somebody who's having personal problems or they're having work problems and they're not performing. And then they get really stressed out because they think they're, it's reflection of them. And it's like, look, like, maybe you don't like leading you know and that's okay i think that don't get stuck though because then that's where you end up i think with folks that burn out and burnout to me is just when you can't change your internal talking track to yourself if you're tearing yourself down you're tearing your work down that's burnout but like that's your internal that doesn't mean that somebody else sitting in your seat would burn out it's not necessarily your external circumstance. It's how you're reacting to it that leads to it. And there's many reasons why, but I think a lot of it is you get stuck in a role you just don't want to be in. And so then you you start telling yourself all these stories, why everybody around you is causing you to fail when in fact, you're just misaligned to what your passion really is. And I think to me, that's what I always try to just coach folks through. And some people leave and, and go do something else. Other times, we switch roles other times they do just fine. So I think it's just a matter of the person and what they ought to be doing for themselves and I think I'm not one who gets upset when I see people leave necessarily the organization. I think a good organization builds talent and delivers it into the world. Obviously I want I want talent to stay, but the reality is people will grow occasionally and they'll be ready for the next level we might not have it yet. And so they have two choices, wait Or go and explore that. And I'm very happy to help them along the way. And I think for me, always staying true to the person, irrespective of that circumstance is is paid off in the long run.
0: That's awesome. A good friend of Shelly and I, he's got a phrase that I love. We're not all retiring together, right? We're all on different paths, you know? So some people stay, some people go, and right time, right place, and maybe you'll see them again, right? Uh, and I think your your philosophy, it's uh, something Shelly and I discuss a lot, is the the giving, right? The constantly giving. Uh, philosophically, I think uh, one of the things that aligns us is this core fundamental belief that the one who gives the most will win, right? That it's just, you just keep giving, right? It's it's one of the great things, I think, about uh, the position that we're in, living in the country that we live in, in the economy we live in, the time we live in, uh, where that is really the the best strategy of like, there's really no reason to not just give whenever you can. So I am curious, we're on the precipice of what I think is going to be some pretty interesting changes. And I, I use pretty interesting as a euphemism for scary, or exciting, or a lot of things really depends on your perspective and kind of your, your mentality. But what are you seeing? I mean, you've, you've been doing this a long time. You're in a really dynamic and competitive space. You've worked at amazing organizations. What is the most important thing you think people should be thinking about right now over the next 12 to 18 months? What occupies when your wife says go outside? And I really want to know why you have to go outside, right? We'll cover that another time. <laughs> like, Why can't you do the thinking indoors? Do you thrash about? Is there some kind of violent behaviors? It's like, no, go outside. Take the dog for a walk. We won't get into that just yet. Okay. But I do want to know like, when you've got a free minute, you know, that 30 seconds every day, what idea are you playing with your head? What's preoccupying yourself right now where you're like, I wish I had time to sit down and really chew on this one?
2: Yeah. You know, that's a good question. I think that our society has seen multiple ways of change in, in quick succession really over the last maybe 30 years so you know the internet was not a thing then the internet was a thing right and then the internet was everything and then the internet is everywhere <laughs> and it's connected us all so we had a nice wave there where originally i think people thought you were just going to go get your encyclopedias on the internet and that was that was what what it was right like and now we recognize how transformative it is to connect all these devices, connect each other in ways we never really thought were possible before. I think that we saw the social media phenomenon kind of come along and reconnect us. I I remember how excited I was before Facebook, you actually had to remember how to contact somebody, right? Like that was not, so you lost touch with people that you probably would not have otherwise
0: wanted to lose touch with. And I think that... And then you did regain touch with some people you wish you didn't regain touch with. (laughs) Well, then then Uh, I think we all got excited about how many
2: people (laughs) we follow and how many followers. And we turned it into a Rolodex of just random people. And then, you know, we didn't really share values and, and that sort of thing. So, yes, I think that's happened. And we now compete over things which are interesting, like how many likes we can get or how many followers we have, like these kind of meaningless things that, have meaning, right? And so it's just interesting to see how those things have evolved. We saw the mobile phones, right? Mobile phones came along and evolved and throughout all of, all of these changes, they were highly disruptive. A hundred percent of the time we were okay. Like, I don't know if I feel okay. I don't know if you feel okay, but I, I feel okay. I don't like some of the way I've seen, like, I think interpersonal relationships erode a bit. I think the internet is not a friendly place in in a lot of ways because everyone's anonymous and they're, not necessarily kind. And I think the written word is never as strong as interpersonal communication of just sitting down and talking with folks. So I think that there's a lot of divisiveness that I think just happens because of the medium of communication that we're choosing there. But now we have AI coming onto the scene. And I think that we're in the hype phase a little bit here where everybody's, I don't know about everybody, but many people are feeling a little doomy and gloomy, like, oh my goodness, they're going to take over everything there's no room for people that create things anymore because we'll just use generative ai and i don't know that i agree i think that in an active campaign what we really believe is that ai can help make our jobs easier but we're still going to be there and it's going to be an assistant alongside of us and i think that you know not fighting the ai transition but really learning how to incorporate it into our lives in i think positive ways to make us more productive to give us additional ideas I think is the way to go. And I'm pretty excited about it. I recognize that the world of deep fakes is here. Like, Mm. you know, I think that's pretty clear where they can take a soundtrack like this and they could recreate a podcast where we're discussing something we're not discussing right now. And it would sound fairly legitimate. So I think that the ability to trust the content that you're consuming is going to be difficult. That's interesting. And I really think that's going to be, there's probably going to be a wave where there's a lot of like really good deep fake videos and things that are going to come out that we're all going to be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe these horrible atrocities have happened. And yet they're not real, right? There are people creating chaos in the world for negative outcomes. And I think that to me, that's a scary potential reality that we've got to be prepared for as a society, which is how do we prevent that from happening? Because that's not something that I can fix or you can fix, or I think even the three of us can fix. We as society and as people are gonna to have to be a little bit better at filtering what we're seeing. And we've already seen it. Like there was a a funny article that was recently going around about this five foot snapping turtle. And the story was that this five foot snapping turtle in a lake here in Indiana ate somebody, right? And everyone's like, Oh my god, this this five foot snapping turtle. I mean it. I had somebody texted to me and I was like, there's no way there was a five foot snapping turtle. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Like, that's not real. That could eat a Stop person. It. How small are you? <laughs> well, that kid was pretty nasty, but they're they're not five foot big and and eating people, and at least around here. So that's not even a deep fake. That was just fake news. And I think that there's been so much fake news, and you know, the onion started it all, or it seemed like in a lot of ways, where they were like these semi-believable articles, but you knew oh, it was yeah. the onion. Uh, Now you see it on social media where people are sharing memes that people are buying into and believing, and it's completely false. And so I think that we've got a potential reality where that's a lot worse. And that's been, I don't know that I have an answer there, but I think somebody needs to solve that problem because I I do think the authenticity of content is going to be
0: something that we really need to pay attention to. It's interesting. I see. And the thing, when you say that the deep fakes, right, like uh, these articles and these news and all this, like. For a lot of people, there's a lot of skepticism in a lot of people, you know, even like way back when early days of internet, right? Snopes came out pretty quick and that was a really good solve for a lot of the, the more mass distortions of truth, right? I don't think there's as much confidence in some of the other things that have evolved since, but I'm wondering if the deep fakes might represent the heat death of social media a little bit because there won't be any trust right? Like there's still trust, but it's diminishing. And would that lead potentially to more of a, a stabilized news source? Like what, you know, when, when we used to read newspapers and things like that, I don't know. I'm hearing you. I don't know if it's all bad potentially because you might get to a point of like, it's all noise, right? Like it's just so overwhelmed with noise that like you stop looking. That's an optimistic view. And I don't know if like, because like you said, our first phones you just used to call people right and now we've got everybody's got something sewn to their hand all the time and like the kids their first move is snapchat or getting on a video game to, to connect with their friends which again you know I don't think it's a terrible idea, but if it's all you're doing, I think it's it's pretty unhealthy but it's interesting to think how much of that's going to impact us with with continuation of that one of the biggest challenges I have with athletics today is that like, I think the 90% of value that I got of playing sports with kids in the neighborhood was you had to argue and come up with your own rules. There wasn't a referee and adults monitoring and managing the game. So like, I think that's part of where the loss of like healthy debate of like, I'm safe. No, you're not. I hate you. I want to fight your brother. That was like 90% of how every game ended, right? And I learned some pretty good skills for business of like, hey, do I really need this goal? No. All right, I'm going to give this one up, but I'm going to recall this later on, right, if I need a call to go my way, right? But I I do think like so we're we're not helping these kids learn how to do healthy conflict from their first moments playing any kind of sports. They've got a referee, right? And so a couple of kids in the neighborhood playing baseball, and I went way younger, and I think I was just out of college, and I asked – Just for fun, I said, you guys mind if I play all-time outfield? And then they asked me like halfway through the game of like, hey, uh, Pat, is this guy safe or out? I'm like, no way, man. That's like, that's the real sport. The resident stuff is what we do. But like, you got to figure out how to argue and negotiate and and collaborate. That's And I think that's one of the biggest challenges of kids today is that they're not given any of that practice early on in life. Well, certainly, for the last few years, where students
2: weren't even allowed to go into the classroom and they were working you know independently at home, I think there's this kind of cohort of people that are entering the workforce or entering college or entering the next set of their educational journey where they didn't even have the classroom socialization of what does it mean to be appropriately seated and mm. not yeah. you know fidgeting or looking at something else or doing all of the things that folks were probably doing. And so I think that there's a challenge there. I think that the idea of is recess important? Is recess not important? Is physical education important? Is it not? I think it does build a lot of what you're talking about, where you learned a lot on the playground and how to interact with others. That was really the only place you really had that was under structured or unstructured where you were all together and you had to figure it out. And so you knew. And you figured it out because you knew like, gosh, if I go up there and Tom's on the slide, he's going to push me. So I'm probably not going to go up there when Tom's on the slide. But if Bill's there and I go up there and Tom's there, well, I know Bill's got my back and Tom's not going to mess with the two of us. Right. And so it's just, That's right. it's just those things. And I think that you learn to kind of, how do I fit in society and how do I coexist peacefully without just demanding my way? Because if I just showed up and said, this is the way it's going to be, it's my way or the highway, then there'd be nobody playing with me on the playground. Right. And I think that. Perhaps you lose some of that when you're only on digital forums and playing video games and that sort of thing. But it seems to me that my youngest child, he's 15 now, but he's been much better adjusted at like, he's going to the gym and his buddies are working out and and they go out and they do do things together. They'll play basketball and they'll do those things. So I have observed that at least with our children, our oldest, my stepson, kind of avoided a lot of this. And I think my next two were kind of there at the heart of like I can't really go anywhere without my daughter taking Instagram photos of (laughs) herself. And I think that's just very different. So, but it does seem like the world changes and and these things phase in and phase out and what people value is going to change over
0: time too. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's, that's a great point. I I think obviously I think we could go for at least another four or five days straight. I don't know if you're up for that. Apparently you'll work till three in the morning, so we can keep you up for a while (laughs) if you're open to it. But uh rare occasions that's on every <laughs> day very clear awesome well uh tony thank you so much for taking the time and participating and being on the podcast today really appreciate it congratulations on all the success it's well earned you're an inspiration and your story you know the ups the downs the shoots the ladders of life and just persisting is really an inspiration and i appreciate you sharing your story and, and your your perspective with us
2: Yeah, thank you, Pat. Thank you, Shelly, for having me today. It's just a real pleasure to get to know both of you a little bit and hopefully some value to your listeners in our conversation. And just thank you for your time.
0: Oh, I definitely know they will. Yeah. Yes. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us.
1: And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast. Or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.